Good afternoon. Welcome to Mind Pilot. This is Dr. Jana Price Sharps. Thank you for joining us today. Today we're going to talk about changing habits. How do you do that? And what are some things that can get in the way of changing old habits, old behaviors? And one of the things that we found after working with first responders for a long time is uh, homeostasis can be a problem. So we have a guest today, Dr. Matthew Sharps, and I'm going to ask him to give you a kind of a definition and describe what is homeostasis. Yeah, thanks. Uh, homeostasis is essentially the maintenance of a steady state. And it's what really you know, human physiology is geared to, okay? If you've just had a big turkey dinner, you don't suddenly go out and have another one. On the other hand, if you haven't eaten for a couple of days, you're going to want to eat, okay? Same thing with drinking water and so on and so forth. Now, this can also be the case with a variety of very unhealthy factors. For example, someone who becomes addicted to one or another type of a narcotic or alcohol, gradually their homeostatic optimum, the point at which they feel best, begins to shift toward more and more of whatever that substance is until it may be extremely painful to attempt to, you know, to literally to, to deny yourself the substance to which you're addicted. And we see a similar um, analogy, really, in many forms of behavior. You get stuck in a way of thinking, a way of behaving, and even if it's not optimal, one or two things may happen. You may cling to it anyway, essentially homeostatically, or you may cling to it because you don't recognize it. You may not actually understand what you're doing or why because you simply don't reflect on it. What role would adrenaline have with homeostasis? Yeah, well, that's an interesting one because there's several different ways of looking at that. Uh, many people, we do see this in first responders and in other people in hazardous occupations, the so-called adrenaline junkie. That really isn't that well supported by empirical understanding. But people do get to the point where they just need, they feel a strong need for the high level of action to which they're used. And if they don't have that level of action, they may start trying to create it for themselves. Yeah. Now, the other factor, though, is that when we are highly adrenalized, we're in the human fight-or-flight response. And no matter how smart we started out, the dynamics of that reduce for the period of the stress, the activity, activation and activity in the prefrontal cortex. This is the main center of human judgment, uh, human thought. And so, under those conditions of stress, we may also have a stronger tendency to cling to homeostatic patterns of behavior simply because they become automatized. So let's say a first responder is coming home from a long shift and they have a lot of adrenaline in their system and they start that self-talk, which is so common of, oh, I suppose it's going to be bad when I get home. My my spouse and I are going to get in a fight. It's going, it's going to be terrible. Could homeostasis be playing a part in that thought process? Oh, in several different ways, yes. Human beings um, tend to have patterns of interaction with other human beings. There are people you can joke with, people you can't, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, you'll frequently see this, um, you more in the, in the clinical realm than I see, 
um, where people are in a destructive pattern and they just keep doing the same thing again and again and again without ever reflecting on it. And if they do reflect on it with some friend, you know, how come you and your, your spouse are always fighting? Oh, you know how she is. You know how he is. Well, they're speaking in what we refer to as gestalt rather than feature-intensive terms, okay? How you are, well, you're not really looking at any details that you could get a handle on to make the changes. Now, you see another factor here, too, very frequently with first responders. Um, law enforcement, uh, fire personnel, they're used to being in control, either of their individual equipment or of a crew or, or team. And so they're giving orders. You don't say please and thank you a lot in the middle of a raging wildfire or in the middle of a SWAT team action. Okay, They give orders. Well, you get home, and if your family doesn't respond to you the way you'd like them to, even though they may never have responded that way before, you're likely to start giving orders. Okay, And they're not going to like that. Moreover, I've got to admit, in my entire life, I have never seen a messy fire engine. And a police car is not going to be messy either as soon as they can get it cleaned up after the last person was in the backseat doing whatever they were doing. The point is that these, the people in these agencies, it's like, it's like a ship at sea. You have to know where everything is. When you get home, expecting at a some level, not expecting explicitly, but really as an implicit expectation that your home will have the same level of order as a fire engine or a police car, for that matter, a ship at sea. And suddenly it isn't. There are dishes all over the place. The child-rearing practices appear feral to you, okay? There's stuff all over the place, you know. Uh, the, the, the dog may have done that thing again, whatever it is. And suddenly, my God, why isn't this as orderly as the fire engine? And nobody actually says that. You don't think, oh, well, my house is a fire engine. That would be crazy. But the homeostatic habits of mind you've been using out in the field can transfer themselves to the home environment um, quite maladaptively and frequently without the individual realizing that that they're doing it. Okay, Because once again, they're thinking in the gestalt terms. Oh, it's always this way. Exactly what is this way? Well, you can go through the details, but you're not going to as you get madder and madder because the house is not as orderly as a fire engine. So you've turned... Um You've used the term gestalt several times, and we have several podcasts about that. But in this podcast, could you redefine it, please? Yeah, this goes uh, not to the gestalt psychotherapy. That's a completely different thing. We're talking about gestalt in the sense of gestalt psychology. The word gestalt in German is a, a, a nightmare, really, to define. So we have a sort of uh, agreed-upon definition of it. A gestalt is a configuration. Okay. It's the way a, a thing configures. So if you have like six marbles on a desk, well, you see six marbles. But if you put them, uh, two of them together, two of them together, and two of them together, nobody sees six marbles anymore. They see a configuration of three pairs. Okay. Now, those perceptual factors that were studied uh, very intensely uh, about 100 years ago, they also move into the realm of thinking, of thinking in gestalt terms, thinking in patterns without looking at the patterns. And in, in uh, actually three books of, of my own, it's quite a bit of research work, what we see is a continuum of gestalt thinking to feature-intensive processing. Now, feature-intensive processing is where I look at every detail. Gestalt processing is much faster because I don't do that. Okay? If you think about humanity in the ancient world, if you're going to have to hunt something like a mammoth or a rhinoceros and you're doing it with a pointy rock, you're probably not going to spend a lot of time thinking about its ancestry and what kind of creature it is and et cetera, et cetera. You pretty much have to whomp it with the rock, a technical term, whomp, okay? Um, but suppose you want to make the stone tool to do that job with. It's very slow, very painstaking. That must be feature intensive. 
So human beings move back and forth in this theoretical framework on this continuum from the gestalt to the feature intensive. The trick is knowing which one you need at a given time, because getting in the same fight with your spouse that you've gotten in the last 20 times you've come back from a deployment or a bad fire or whatever, have you, you're really not thinking in feature-intensive terms of, well, why is my spouse doing this? Does the spouse really understand what it's like out there on the line? Well, they probably don't. You probably haven't told them, okay? As the spouse wrapped up in their own problems right now, they had to deal with the plumber. Well, okay, the, I, you can't, the spouse can't get killed dealing with the plumber. The first responder can in the field. But the spouse isn't thinking in those terms. Now, if you start looking at all those features, you may come up with more rational solutions to questions of homeostatic behavior, just moving along within the concept, if you will, of a mental set. Without that, you're going to be in gestalt terms, and you're just going to keep doing the same, same thing over and over. So when you're highly aroused, you have a lot of adrenaline, you have a tendency to go back to using old gestalts that you've had over time? It's a fair statement, yes, because you're going to go back. The part of the human mind, and this gets very theoretical very quickly, but the part of the human mind that really deals best with options, with the creation of novel patterns to, of behavior, is the prefrontal cortex. Okay? And the prefrontal cortex, it's, it's, it's the thing that really does get shortchanged with, as the dynamics of the brain under stress and the fight-or-flight response go. You simply have lower efficiency. So no matter how smart you started out, under high levels of arousal, you're not going to be as intelligent. Now let's break the word intelligent down into feature-intensive terms, though. You're not going to see as many options. You're not going to weigh things with the same level of judgment. And so if the spouse is screaming at you because you've been 21 days on the line, you have, well, what have you been totaling? Two, three hours of sleep at night, of undisturbed sleep at night? Um, the level of arousal more or less will preclude the kind of in-depth understanding you need to say, okay, how, what, okay, never mind how my spouse is. Okay, my, you, know, you know, my spouse is like that. It's more a question of exactly what is triggering this situation in, in terms of its features. And that's exactly the kind of consideration that under stress, uh, or under stress and in a state of deep fatigue, you're, you're not going to do. So one of the techniques that I often use is called chaining, where after an event, I will take the person back through the event and say, okay, were you sick? Were you tired? Had you eaten? You know, did you just work 21 days on the line? You know, what contributed to your reactions in this event? And were there times where you could have stopped this event from going forward? So in the scenario you and I have been talking about where you go home and you get, you know, get in an argument with your spouse, if you did chaining after the event, you could say, well, let's say I was tired. I'd been sleeping an average of two to three hours a night. So when I get home, I need to have a plan taking into account of how I'm going to be feeling. Maybe I need to go take a shower and get into bed for a couple hours and take a long nap and then re-engage with my family, something like that. Yes, this uh, technique of, of chaining from a purely cognitive standpoint what it is is essentially a kind of enforced feature-intensive processing. Exactly. And we, that's been the, the use of cognition, of, of cognitive processing and decision-making. It's been studied like crazy. And what we see uh, pr producing success typically is several factors. One is that you have a prior framework 
for understanding whatever it is you're getting into. Rather than simply reacting to it, you have a prior framework. This is how I'll respond when and if this thing happens. That framework has to be explicit. If you just say, well, you know, um, I'll, 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 you know I'll just wing it. I, I guess I'll talk to her or him, okay? It's not enough. It has to be explicit. And that explicit nature should proceed by feature-intensive steps. Now, there have been uh, some very good studies done of um, what kind of thinking is successful and what kind of thinking is not. And people who are going to successfully manage a situation, they tend not to be wedded to a viewpoint. They tend to be able to shift their ideas, shift what they're going to do as events change in the situation. Okay, So if you have an overall prior framework, that prior framework should include eventuality. If such and such a thing happens, what will I do? How will I do it? Now, it's obviously, there's going to be some free-form operation in any human thinking at all. But that having the prior framework, including the prior framework that I will be able to be flexible in my thinking as needed under these conditions. That prior explicit feature and a framework with a degree of necessary flexibility is boiling down a huge amount of research. That, 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 single, um, that single phrase, really, I think sums up the probability of success the problem is when we're under high stress, we're in the human fight-or-flight response. That's exactly what we do, do poorly. We as human beings do poorly. So is it fair to say that the more awareness we have of our long-term behaviors, the more we're able to make a plan and using that feature-intensive or step-by-step -step process so that when we are stressed, we have a plan, we know what we're going to do, with that flexibility and kind of know what we want to achieve? Generally so. I mean, that's an idea that uh, far predates the existence of anything you'd consider psychology. I mean, so something Socrates was on about uh, well over, you know, 2,500 years ago. They used to apparently have it chiseled into, uh, at the oracle at Delphi, the great temple there. There were two things, all things in moderation, which is pretty good advice, the other thing was know yourself, and that, you know, it's a very simple statement, know yourself, what does it mean? Well, when you break that down in feature-intensive terms, you're talking about exactly what you just said, the necessity to understand my suite of response under given characteristics, under given situations, without fooling myself. And that's, that's, that's rather difficult. Well, it, it, it requires self-evaluation. Yes, and the self-evaluation has to be ongoing, and once again, it has to be explicit and feature-intensive, okay, so that you can develop effective prior frameworks for understanding. You know, if you look, again, to the first responders that we're talking about here, all of them have exactly that, the prior explicit feature-intensive framework. How do you deploy on a SWAT action? And there are different ways of deploying, depending on the situation, Okay. Um, uh, you know, bomb squads, EOD people, explosives ordnance disposal, they have specific plans for dealing with specific types of weapon and specific layouts of that weapon, where they find it and under what conditions, with a relative flexibility there of action depending on how the, the bad guys have set it up. The same is true for the different kinds of fires. So the first responders are already people who use these planning, if you will, these, these cognitive technologies, these psychological technologies of planning. The trick is to apply it in other walks of life as well.
and your family relationships to dealing with yourself to knowing you know it's one of the things I, one of the things I would say is the, 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 if you really need a drink that's the time not to take one um, that single factor there can be used as a nice explicit prior framework that you, you put down the scotch and you go do something else um, but all this requires that, if you will, that prefrontal functioning, okay, the, the, the higher level of functioning cognitively that becomes essentially one of the first casualties of the heightened state of, respo- of, of arousal that you see under, under emergency conditions. So the prior framework can also be taken from what you see other people doing that's successful, Correct. Yes, but human beings are, are uh, tend to be imitative. This has been known for many years. Work in Bandura, for example. Um, human beings tend to imitate people who are seen as powerful or as rewarded for their actions. Well, so in media, you see a lot of pretty bad examples that are powerful and rewarded for their actions, and suddenly you have people behaving in a manner that's completely maladaptive. But a, a good trick there would be to to look at the behavior of those who are successful, the people who are in a successful marriage, the people who succeed in their service, their law enforcement agency, their fire service, their fire agency, whatever they're doing. How are the successful people doing what they do? Okay, and yeah, that kind of really apprenticeship and mentorship, if you will. I mean, that's that's technically there with any trainee in any field. Uh, you don't see a heck of a lot of that. F- really almost formalized training, though, in dealing with life itself. And so people do encounter a crisis or catastrophe in the field very often without the, the, the plan, the prior framework for understanding, okay, this is how I will respond under these conditions because I do know myself, and I will take these explicit steps and I will engage in a feature-intensive manner. Okay, these are the things I need. I know you are very, uh, very concerned that people get enough sleep. You can't do much with them until they're sleeping pretty well. Okay? Well, uh, you know, I, I've been around agencies where people say that the solution to problems, ah, just go home and have a drink. Well, by the time you're halfway down the bottle tonight, you're not going to sleep worth a damn. You sleep, your sleep will be disturbed. You see, um, you know, there's a difference between passing out and going to sleep. That knowledge has to be there immediately if your habit is to reach up, get the bottle of Jack Daniels, and pour it. That's your habit. That's what you tend to do automatically. I've, I've, I've talked with people who, you know, without thinking about it, suddenly there you are with a glass of whiskey. Um, you have to think about it because it's, it's not a good idea. But at the moment, it certainly seems like one on a gestalt level. So these, plan, these elements of planning, these elements really of, of, of the prior framework of explicit feature-intensive consideration, you know, we tend not to do that. Emergencies put us into a heightened state of arousal. Our responses tend to be broad and gestalt, okay? And um, that can be absolutely essential under field conditions. It becomes catastrophic when you have the leisure, when you have the time to go, yeah, I wonder if this is a good idea. What should I be doing instead? So I guess to sum this up, it's going to be very important if you do want to make your life better, you need to take that step back and ask yourself, what is one problem area in my life, in my home life, that really needs to be addressed? And I think the tendency for a lot of people 
um, is to say, well, if only my spouse would change, then everything would be okay. And so rather than saying that, say, is there something that I could do to make this situation better? Because we're not in charge of what other people do, but we are in charge of what we do. And so is there something that we can say differently with a different tone of voice, um, thinking about when we say it, how we say it, you know, so really making a plan before you get home, before the event, so that you have a pretty good idea of what you're going to do. Not so much planning for the other person, but planning for what you're going to do. I know one of the things you emphasize <laughs> is the dis- the distinction between what you can control and what you can't control. And per- I find myself looking at situations going, this would work a lot better if this entire situation would change, if this entire agency were completely different, if this entire university were completely different or something. You know, it would also be nice if I want to go on vacation if I didn't have to get cram cram myself into a tiny little airplane and have that whole, the horror of modern air travel. I'd much rather, if only we had something like, you remember the old show Star Trek, the, the transporter, so I could suddenly, oh, suddenly I'm here and on the beach, great. Um, that would be nice, it's just completely impossible. So knowing what is within the realm of possibility for me, what do I control? As opposed to, this is completely outside my control. And other people's behavior, I may be able to persuade them. And it depends on the individual. Some people, you know, some people are relatively logical. You can sit down and have a conversation like we're having right now. Well, this is this. Well, yeah, but I feel this way. Oh, I see why you do that. Well, let's do this. As opposed to a lot of people who more or less become homicidal when you try to reason with them. Okay, um, you can't control that person, and um, you can be sitting here going, "Gosh, if only my spouse was somebody completely different, this would work." See, if you're saying, "Gosh, I really would love this person if they were somebody else," that you really don't have that control and that situational control. You have some control if you're getting rained on. You could go inside a building. If there isn't a building, you can't. You may just have to deal with the rain, or here's a heck of an idea, take a coat. Um, So there's all these factors that vary in terms of their immediate controllability. One of the, I I think, one of the more important adaptive coping mechanisms is to recognize that. At what point is the thing outside my control? Well, there's nothing I can do about whatever it is. And we're kind of trained not to do that. I, I, there's a solution for every problem. Well, sometimes the solution is to avoid getting in that situation again. Yeah. But you have to have the knowledge. The, once again, the prior framework. Gosh, when this happens again, things are completely outside my control. Huh. But that's how they are. Huh. Therefore, my best bet is not to get in that situation again. Well, that was very helpful, and I hope that everyone will take a minute of your time, take that step back, and begin breaking down a problem area and making a decision about what you're going to do differently. Uh, Do a feature-intensive analysis point by point. What specifically can I do differently to make this work better? You're good in the field. That's what you do every day. Make sure you're doing that at home. I hope you choose happiness and you have the right to be happy. Thank you so much for being our guest once again, Dr. Sharps. Thank you. So thank you for joining us at MindPilot. Don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.